Welcome to Comic Book Nation's bonus round episode, where this time we are talking about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 in full spoilers. How are you doing, Comic Book Nation? I am your host, Kofi Outlaw, and I got to see Mission Impossible a bit early, so we are here to talk about it with one of our comicbook.com editors, film critics, horror aficionados, and genuine movie lover, Mr. Patrick Cavanaugh is here with me. What's up, everybody? I, I like where that went with the genuine movie lover. I was a little nervous about what sort of genuine thing I would be, but you nailed it. Oh, yeah. I mean, a comic book. We could go. I could go either. We could go a lot of directions with it. But today is all positive. You are. Uh, I think you are one of our biggest movie fans in general of kind of across the board from fine cinema to good genre fare. So uh, Patrick is a perfect kind of person to help me break down Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning, because I feel like you'll have good kind of perspective on this film, the larger scope of the franchise, and how those two things either come together or not with this seventh Mission Impossible film. Now, obviously, like right off the bat, spoiler alert, if you're listening to this, you downloaded the Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 or clicked on the video, spoilers, discussion, so we're not wasting any time. This is for our regular non-spoiler review please do subscribe to comic book nation on your favorite podcast platforms subscribe to the comic book nation youtube page where you can see our regular episode on opening day with no spoilers talking about mission impossible dead reckoning but this one is the breakdown in full spoilers so make sure you got the two straight i think we labeled it all correctly but this is your final warning spoiler alert all right, so let's just start off uh, kind of in broad strokes and kind of see how you feel. Patrick, how did you feel about Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1? Uh, I mean, it's tricky because I all I knew about this really was he rides a motorcycle off of a cliff because that is the set piece that they've been promoting. That's the they're releasing featurettes of just about him riding a motorcycle. And it's not even like in, you know, say like the Dubai sequence in uh, uh, Ghost Protocol, where it's a full sequence involving a stunt. Like this was literally just, he's going to ride a, a, a motorcycle off of a cliff. So knowing nothing about this, uh, I, I didn't really have high expectations. And I guess those low expectations were met um I, I i'm not a huge i've seen every single mission impossible in theaters i've seen every single one multiple times but i still have a hard time uh, uh getting thrilled getting totally pumped up for these movies uh which maybe we can dive into a bit so so i was lukewarm excitement and my lukewarm expectations were fully met i'm kind of the same boat i never i love the mission impossible franchise i i the first one kind of really changed me as a film fan when you have this big blockbuster movie with brian de palma's mind behind it um a lot of fun things i mean that movie still holds up in some ways of just how weird it is counter blockbuster it is but I always look forward to them because I know I'll be entertained, but I, they're not like, I'm not chomping at the bit like, oh, this summer I got to get that Mission Impossible. I've never been that way. I was a Chris McQuarrie fan like long before this. Um, Usual Suspects, Way of the Gun, all that kind of stuff. Even Valkyrie I even enjoy for being what it is. And so when he came together with Tom Cruise on this after Valkyrie, I was like, oh, you know, I was pleasantly excited for that as a collaborative novelty, but... Yeah, I never get like so excited and I don't really have expectations for these. I know I'm going to see stunts. I know I'm going to see action and I leave it up to Tom Cruise to kind of take it from there and wow me. And I'm like, okay, I got in the seat, Tom, do your thing, wow me. Um, so I was kind of in the middle with this one. And I guess, I guess that's a good place to kind of dive in. This is a Mission Impossible we're getting after so many years of waiting, right? And I feel like, We've been hearing about this motorcycle stunt alone for the better part of like, what, three, four years now, has it been? Yeah, started filming early 2020, then took a break, then came back late 2020. And even before that, we knew that like we were hearing teases like, oh, this time there's going to be a stunt that Tom does that's like 
so nuts. He's like, you know, nearly killing people during the pandemic over this movie. So like, yeah. Um, was it worth the wait? I don't know. I put that in the show notes and it's like, I don't know about that. I don't know if anything has been worth the wait from what we had to do to get here. Um, and what we had to literally live through to get here. But it, it, it wasn't any big like degrading of the product i don't think i don't think this mission impossible took a step backwards in any big way um i think that and we can get into this all i think there was just so much going on in this plot with so many characters and motivations and and all of that whereas a lot of the previous ones are a lot more focused right it's like ethan's world ethan's objectives and he brings some friends along the way whereas this one it felt like the scope of it and the characters kind of and who was getting focus and spotlight and their motivations and stuff kept kind of changing. There was a lot going on in it. Yeah, and as far as whether it's worth the wait or not, I mean, it was between like Ghost Protocol to Rogue Nation was a four-year wait, and then it was just a three-year wait between Rogue and and, uh, Fallout. So like a three to five-year wait, I don't think is totally out of the norm for this franchise. And... So, you know, it, it it really boils down to, like, what people want out of these movies. And and I, I feel like the, the Mission Impossible franchise has had a similar trajectory to something like the Fast and the Furious movies, where you have, you know, successful debut entry, and then the next few installments try and recreate that magic to uh, middling success. And then with Ghost Protocol... Huge, you know, the, the Dubai scenes and the opening, you know, jailbreak scene, like it really emphasized like set pieces and just visual antics that are just as entertaining, like on mute as they are if you're if you're listening to the plot. Similar to Fast and Furious, Fast Five had the 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 Brazil vault sequence, and it was okay. This is what this franchise is. It's these huge set pieces, huge stunts. Who cares about what the earlier stuff was? Let's really try and, and double down on what that is. But also, I feel like Mission Impossible still doesn't totally know what it is. Sure, it delivers some exciting action, but it, it is totally sacrificing, like, Ethan Hunt as a character. And, and for better or worse, it feels like each movie is almost like an episode of the TV series, where it doesn't really matter if you watched what came before it, or you're just jumping in as a new viewer. You have Jeremy Renner's character shows up in Rogue Nation, comes back, uh, excuse me, uh, shows up in Ghost Protocol, comes back for Rogue Nation, then is just written out of the show for no real reason. And so it's just like, this series feels like it doesn't really know what it wants to be or what it should be or what audience is like, other than stunts and movie stars quipping with one another and and so on that note it totally delivers but it feels like it's still missing the point of what it could potentially be to be just a foolproof uh top to bottom success yeah and i feel like this one kind of weirdly both is is the kind of we're seeing the schism in this one more so than the others where it is both just set piece stunt spectacle but they also are trying to go back to that to Palma, like deeper story about like the agents, their history and their kind of paranoia and like their their psychological state. And it is kind of a weird mix to get in this one. So let's let's just get into it and let's start right from the beginning. Um, just like The Flash, I think this movie has one of the most kind of eyebrow raising opening sequences, um, not because of its own faults, really well executed and done but because of the unintended real life parallels that nobody saw coming at the time of making this. Uh, yeah, this whole movie begins and I and the, I, w- I don't watch trailers as much anymore. So I was kind of murky about the plot, which I mean, it's a mission impossible. You're kind of murky about the plot. Like Rogue Nation, there's a Rogue Nation out there. Fallout, that Rogue Nation is still mad at Tom Cruise. Like, you know, they're pretty simplistic premises. Um, but this one was surprising in the whole AI villain, the entity, uh, that being a thing which was so on the nose, timely, that they could have probably never predicted we'd be freaking out this hard about AI stuff about now. But also the submersible accident, right? So there's a submarine accident in the beginning of this movie. And I was just sitting there like, ooh, ooh, <laughs> like, ooh, this is going to get 
real interesting on Twitter and film Twitter uh, and all the meme mashup jokes I already know are coming. But um, yeah, so there's a submersible accident at the beginning of this one, which was just kind of a, a funny on the nose thing to have happen right after the Titan submersible <laughs> disaster. But again, they didn't know that when they were making this. And they, I was like, I was joking with like some people in our video team, Jill and John, when we came out. I know like Tom Cruise and Chris McQuarrie had like pillows. They were probably screaming in when they were just like heard the news about that sub accident. And they were like, I can't believe this is happening. Like, But um, you set up these stakes and it's kind of a weird murky thing. The beginning in this movie is the first act is so different than a lot of them. And it's very kind of, I don't know if it's like, Macquarie going back to like his usual suspects noir kind of like influences or just what they could piece together from what they shot but there is just like a lot of weird fade out and transitions to kind of different things in the opening act of this movie just from the sub accident to this weird scene with Ethan and the delivery guy and the pizza and you know to then getting into what's happening with Ilsa Faust and 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 um what you might call it uh, from the first movie, uh, Kittridge, Kittridge, like and all of that, yeah, yeah. Well, well, you, like you mentioned, it, it brings back Kittridge, right? Which you know, other than people like you and me who are totally nerds, who are like, yes, Kittridge is back. He doesn't matter. Like he was in the first movie and has completely been absent and, and not mentioned throughout the franchise, and so it's like. This series doesn't know, do we want to have like a, a chronological story that's being told? Or is it just one chapter to the next? Who really cares where we're going? And, and I do appreciate that by bringing in Kittredge, like definitely more so than some of the previous installments that it feels like Christopher McQuarrie was was trying to at least like visually tap into to Brian De Palma's style of like, a lot more Dutch angles, yep. a lot like there was a little bit more campiness to it because especially with more recent entries, there has been a sense of humor of gadgets not totally working, you know, masks, mask making machines breaking down or or what have you. But like this one seemed to lean into that inherent absurdity and, and use that those campy angles and that campy filmmaking style. But also the number of times this movie used the phrase the entity it felt it felt like they wrote the script wanting to give the entity a cooler name that they just forgot to replace before shooting so it's it almost felt like it was written by ai in that they couldn't come up with you know the 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 villain of this movie is not so much a human threat so much as it's skynet like in the terminator yeah. it is there's an ai that is scraping data from everything on the planet and it has become sentient and what does it want to do nobody really knows but the villain we're fighting is this nebulous threat of ai and like you said the real world parables of how the industry is just weirdly scared of ai but nobody really knows how ai is going to like take over Hollywood or take over jobs or whatever. It's just this like looming threat of, we know AI exists, we know the entity exists and we know that it's bad, but we don't really know what its goal is. Yeah, that is, I mean, that is, and credit to Christopher McQuarrie for at least leaning into that and being like in the, in the context of the film being like, you and everybody, it's also a weird movie where like a bunch of spies just keep looking at each other and be like, you don't know what any of this is. You don't know what this thing is for. You don't know what it unlocks and you don't know what his motivations are. We know nothing. And it's just like, okay, we're going with that. But um, yeah, that is, a, it's a strange thing. It, and it kind of works, but it kind of doesn't. Like the, I was laughing because there's some of this that made me think of, uh, I don't know if you've watched, but Class of 09 on FX. Um with like Kate Mara and Brian Tyree Henry and a bunch of people. And it takes place over three decades of these FBI recruits who graduated the class of 09. Then it jumps to their kind of like their near future. And then the far future where Brian Tyree Henry's characters growing up and become the head of the FBI. And he implements an AI program that basically is what this thing is. It's predictive. And, and it begins to make an America where people are suspect it's it's minority report they get suspected on their crimes based on algorithms patterns and the predictions of what they're going to do and so 
it's about them in the future realizing they've made this mistake based on their experience as FBI agents, and then they got to shut it down. In the last few episodes, if you ever watch, are the entity, or I said it, oh my God, the AI system they employ basically using its own resources to like fake like the guy who has the evidence to shut it down. He makes him look like a criminal, and then he gets in a confrontation with the cops and they shoot him to death and things like that. So it's influencing real world stuff. So, but it was a little bit more comprehensive and fun and kind of thought out than this. But um, yeah, there is just like this whole MacGuffin thing where nobody actually knows what the MacGuffin does or is. We, and it's, it's kind of simplistic. And I wrote this in my tweet. I said, you have these, these mismatch. And I think it's the mismatch is my kind of key theme for this. So you have all these characters. You've got Ethan Hunt with his motivations, Ilsa Faust with her motivations. You have Haley Atwell's character, uh, Grace, I think her name is. Yeah. Um, with her kind of storyline motivation. Issei Morales is Gabriel with his motivation, right? Um, then now Ethan's team begins to have like separate views and motivations than him, like Benji and Ving Rhames are running their own thematic storyline and all this stuff. Vanessa Kirby and, and Kittredge have their own kind of shady gray area kind of storyline. Like all of these character motivations are given weight and attention in this movie, but... The, the real silly thing is they're just after this little key that they got to put together to make sure it blinks for most of this movie. Yeah. And, and I think, well, and, and I think the, the biggest issue is that like you look towards rogue nation uh, uh, or you look towards fallout and you have, you know, what is it? Solomon lane, uh, Sean Harris's character in rogue nation and in fallout who it's like, you know, he's the mastermind who's, who's, you know, wants to create chaos. And then you have this huge imposing figure in Henry Cavill's uh, uh, villain in Fallout. So like you have these really interesting villains and then you jump to this and the villain is a nebulous, faceless entity that at one point throws a party. Like <laughs> there's literally a scene where they say the reason we're at this party is because the entity coordinated evites you yeah. know and like with with this this movie's penchant for like you know mask reveals gabriel acts essentially as like the surrogate for the entity and i genuinely thought uh uh gabriel was going to pull off a mask and be a robot and he was just the 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 manifestation of this entity so by like removing any sort of human antagonist i feel like you totally undercut the the whole plot and it just made it really difficult for audiences to invest either in what the villain was trying to do because the villain is the entity that could literally do anything anytime anywhere whether it be digitally erase security footage or replicate uh, uh benji's voice in ethan's earpiece or you know whatever it was just to make the story progress further so you know, by removing that connection that audiences could have had with why a villain is doing what it's doing and why you root for Ethan and Ilsa to stop that threat, it's just so hard to invest in the stakes of this movie. Yeah, I agreed. And like I said, it's for me, it was the mismatch. I think that is the biggest difference in why I ranked kind of Dead Reckoning below. And I still think it's a good, it, for me, it's in the high middle of the Mission Impossible series. But why I rank in specifically Ghost Protocol, or no, Rogue Nation is my favorite, then Ghost Protocol, then the first one, then Fallout, which is, when I look back at it, for the most part, those all had like really good, strong antagonist stories, right? Um, whether it's like the whole betrayal with his surrogate father, Jim, in the first one, or, you know, the whole thing with, um, what's his name? I forget the uh, Swedish actor's name who uh, played in Girl and Dragon Tattoo, but it was... The guy in even that guy who was barely even an active, you know, he didn't do too much interaction. It was mostly them just seeing him and being literally one step behind him constantly while trying to catch him. But still a compelling thing like steeple to chase. He was also very master of disguise and subterfuge and all that stuff and, and pulling it off. And then you get like John Locke and like you said, and, and then the heights of it with Rogue Nation and Fallout where you get Solomon Lane, who's like, I wish they had kept that guy around longer, but and John Locke is as a more physical enforcer threat. Uh, yeah, those were really 
good high points for the series. Whereas in this one, as you point out, I think the thing that I, and I wanted to get into my least favorite thing that I think drags this movie down a little more so than the others is I can't stand, and I, and I, as soon as I did this, I just started shaking my head when we're trying to, and I said the kind of weirdly late personal story for Ethan Hunt, right? Like, I think Michelle, like Ethan's story with Michelle Monaghan and, and his wife, Julia, and having to let her go and her starting another life and how that comes back around and fallout. And he ultimately, again, has to say goodbye to her and let it go is one of the strongest character things we've done with Ethan Hunt. And like the vague mentions of his parents being on a farm in the first movie and all that stuff. But like this movie tries to do this kind of tragic backstory that we don't even get in this movie, right? Like we never do get like what that story is about. Who is this? Okay, so you see Gabriel in the flashbacks killing this woman who looks like she's another agent. And like that's supposed, I guess, is supposed to tell us this is how Ethan tragically formed his great emotional attachment to his teammates and all of that stuff. But again, it's a little late to try to do this like hero's like vulnerable heart story and throw in this antagonist who's been there the whole time that we're just now meeting and Gabriel. Plus, it also feels weird because Brian De Palma brutally murdered like Ethan's whole team. That's how we met this guy was just having his team murdered and him having to kind of scramble and deal with it. Like, I know this guy gets over it. I've seen it. He, he's lost quite a few teammates. Ghost Protocol, he lost like a whole port of a team or, or he lost uh, Sawyer and whatever. So like it happens. And so that was kind of like, I, as soon as I saw that, I was just like, uh, are we really doing this? Are we really doing, oh, he's the man who killed the, my love, the James Bond. Because even though I love Casino Royale, I never really did buy the James Bond, Eva Green, like this is why James Bond's so screwed up and misogynistic is because he loved one woman and she drowned. Like, okay. Well, but, yeah. It, you, 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 you kind of touch up upon that in that like, this movie was poised like by bringing back Kittredge and by bringing Gabriel and connecting it to Ethan's past somehow with, you know, maybe we'll learn more about that in, in Dead Reckoning part two. Like this was poised to finally say, okay, here is Ethan's emotional arc throughout these eight movies. But this hasn't done that. The, you know, the, the agent that was killed by Gabriel at some point in Ethan's past we've never seen before we don't know how that impacted him we don't know if ethan you know because ethan's wife wasn't introduced until three and then she appears at the end of four and then comes back at the end of fallout so even like his wife doesn't seem to be a big emotional motivator for anything he does it's just all the pieces all of the characters in all of these movies feels like they're just the toys in a sandbox that are are just being pulled out by Christopher McQuarrie whenever it suits the story. And, and none of them is, are, are a character where you're like, oh, that's right, he has this huge emotional connection to it, so much as, no, this is the toy that, you know, has the, the, the rocket launcher. So that's why we're going to bring this one out. Because there are agents uh, uh, that, you, you know, from Ghost Protocol, Ghost Protocol ends with, you know, uh, uh, Jeremy Renner's character and, and Simon Pegg's character. Uh, uh, and then Paula, whose last name I can't remember at the time right now. Paula Patton. She, yeah, yeah. She, so she specifically is like, all right, Ethan, I'm on board. I'm taking this iPhone 4 to go off with you on any mission that you ever require me. And she's been vanished from the series. So it's like, we, we don't know if Ethan is a character who can handle anything that is ever thrown at him we don't know if he's a character whose strengths come from improvising plans we don't know if he is is anyone who can ever make a mistake and it's by that episodic nature changing from one movie to the next just to suit an arbitrary MacGuffin's needs that i think ultimately hold this series back as a whole from really tapping into what motivates this, which is just seeing, you know, uh, uh, these clever plots, clever stories that come together uh, by the finale. And because Ethan Hunt's problem solving, uh, uh, death defying antics allow him to do things that no one else can do. Yeah. And this one is kind of, and I can't wait to see the conversation on film Twitter, because this one, 
I mean, this tries to build that emotional, like that kind of have as emotional core by basically fridging two different women. One, we don't even know her name. She just gets killed. Like, that's all it is. And then, of course, the other big topic I want to talk about is uh, this movie takes out my other favorite thing about this franchise as of late, which was Rebecca Ferguson's Ilsa Faust, um, who, of course, dies in a duel with Gabriel. And, uh, yeah, no, she gets an epic death. But how did you feel about that? Because I was kind of like, ah, I was I was a little bit frustrated with this movie after that. And it's been a long time since. And credit to Rebecca Ferguson. I don't know if it was just because I was also just on my silo hype right now. But, um, like, yeah, seeing her get taken out was just. I'm, yeah, I, when because we get this, honestly, for me, and, and I'm like, I jokingly made this my review. But in the first 10 minutes, we see uh, Rebecca Ferguson's Ilsa with a rifle and an eye patch. And then everything after that felt underwhelming because of how badass she is. And it, and that, I feel like her role in all of these movies ties back to nobody having any sort of grand plan. And it was, she do, she shows up in Rogue Nation. Everybody loved her. So it was, well, let's bring her back for Fallout. And n- nobody knows how best to utilize her. And... I fully agree that like she is my favorite part of these movies. I feel like Ethan Hunt and Tom Cruise is my least favorite part of these movies. I like Simon Pegg. Uh, uh, I like Bing Rames, but she was a, a big draw for me, and and I did enjoy, uh, uh, you know, making her a more prominent character. I like having her clearly have an emotional connection with Ethan Hunt that is sort of romantic but definitely more platonic like you know i know rebecca ferguson and i think i think christopher mccrory have kind of said like they toyed with making her a romantic interest but it just never felt earned so just by making her this like emotional interest that that tom cruise uh tom cruise's ethan hunt is invested in that was nice to to not make every character romantic interest so even killing her off felt unearned because they're sort of poising Haley Atwell's grace to be the new you know female protagonist in this 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 series it's like well why not have there be both yeah why not you know say well Ilsa you're gonna exit these movies because you just have to pretend to be dead instead of literally killing her just to elevate Gabriel as a threat in these movies, as opposed to doing other things to, to allowing to, uh, to, to make him the threat or a a villain that is worthy of being Ethan Hunt's adversary. And, and Haley Atwell, I think did a, you know, a a fine job. I thought, uh, uh, Pam Clementa's, uh, Paris assassin. I thought she was pretty badass. especially. yeah, she's great. Yeah, especially juxtaposed to the like goofy, aloof mantis in Guardians earlier oh, yeah. this year by making her this like lunatic that is is you know barely has a, a handful of lines in this movie. So so I liked bringing her in, but yeah, I definitely think without Rebecca Ferguson's Ilsa in this you know upcoming Dead, Dead Reckoning Part Two, that automatically kills whatever sort of interest I had. Uh, uh, has definitely lowered it even further. Yeah, there there is a strange thing about women in this movie. Like, it's like, I forget which other character I was talking about, and but it was just like, we were watching some other franchise, and I was like, I don't, at this point, I'm beginning to lose track of, oh, it was Fast X. And it's like, how many women are thirsting for Dominic Toretto? Because it's now getting weird. Like, now it's his dead baby mom's sister, who was like thirsting for him and we're having these scenes. And I'm like, that's uncomfortable. But yeah, in this movie, it's like, Ethan is like, it's implied he has either quasi romantic or flirty or something kind of connections with at least three women, right? Vanessa Kirby, Haley Atwell, and Rebecca Ferguson, plus the woman who's haunting him because she got killed by Gabriel. There's a lot of this. And again, I was just like, well, who am I supposed to be like really rooting for? Like, which one am I supposed to connect to? Am I supposed to be kind of like connected with Vanessa Kirby's character? But, you know, knowing she could be a femme fatale, am I supposed to be rooting? And then the movie kind of like almost grossly like makes you be like, one of these girls is going to die. Who's it going to be? And you're like, let's take our bets, folks. And I was like, 
Couldn't they just both team up and kick his ass? Like, what is happening here? But yeah, that whole sequence with Elsa's death and like the running and Tom Cruise trying to get there in time, I was like, oh, this just seems like so outdated and kind of like a weird sequence. And yeah, I didn't I didn't really appreciate it. And I know it looked like a grand death for Ilsa, and I was just like, I don't know. But like you said, I, I, I mean, think- I wouldn't I wouldn't be surprised if Rebecca Ferguson herself was kind of just like, can you guys get me out of these movies? Like, no, I think I've that's what got, it was. I mean, I've I got Silo, I've got Dune coming up. Like, yep. I've got other things going on. I don't really need these movies so much as these movies need me. So. Uh, I don't know, just make the the new bad guy kill me, I guess. And then I can go off and do things that are actually more fulfilling to me. Well, and I get it for her because, like, again, these are movies, like we're saying, like the character arcs from this multi-franchise, you know, this multi-film franchise, already actors don't like to necessarily revisit the same role. And like you said, it was about clear, and I saw this really clearly in, in Yesterday, um, cause I watched, like I said, Rogue Nation fallout and then this back to back to back, like within a span of hours, her debut in Rogue Nation is one of the best female character debuts in a, like a late running franchise I've ever seen. Like she's so badass in that movie, smart. So, you know, sexy. There's the whole thing with the dress and the flute at the opera. She's able to kind of hang with Tom Cruise's Ethan Hunt in a way that's not swooning romantic, but she's every bit as able a spy as he is and they even do scenes like when Solomon Lane's like trying to kill her and she kills like one of his henchmen first and gives him back the gun. And you know, she was so confident and cool as a character, but then you get to Fallout, and already you saw the cracks because her character literally floats in and out. And at least Mission Impossible can wink at itself. I hope they're doing this on purpose, but she kind of floats in and out and Fallout, And they're like, nobody really knows what Ilsa's role in all this is. They literally say that in the movie. They're like, trying to review i think it's alec baldwin and and them and jeremy renner and they're like maybe she's a good guy and they're like nobody knows what she is like in this and that's literally what she is it's like oh there's elsa oh then she disappears oh who was that on the motorcycle shooting at us oh that was elsa again and then she just kind of like shows up i think at the at some point in the third act and joins them like fully right and she just kind of like comes in and is like yeah i'm just trying to get myself something i'm stuck in the middle here i don't know and so she didn't really have a whole role. And then there's like the weird thing with her and his wife. And then like that whole nine yards comparing the two of them, um, which was fun. And you think like, yeah, that'll be the key to like maybe that moving forward, because this is what he needed. A, a, a woman who could also handle both sides of his life. Right. Like is not in danger and he doesn't have to worry about, which I thought they were going to do, which have been an awesome kind of storyline. And then in this one, you get again, an even weirder kind of patchwork of Ilsa scenes like that thing in the desert is such a disjointed kind of sequence where he goes and they fight in the desert, not quite together, but like kind of together. And then he finds her in this, the whole fake out. Is she dead then? Which is such a weird fake out when you're going to kill her again later in the movie anyway. But, you know, weird stuff. And then like, yeah. And then it's like, oh, it was like, oh, this is the footage we shot. We just had to piece together from this desert sequence because it looked dope and we had to do something with it. Yeah, well, and and it's also very strange because like you look back at like the first two movies, and I feel like Ethan Hunt, uh, uh, the the female characters, there's like you know sexual chemistry or romantic tension between him and the female characters. Then uh, by the time you get to three, it's like okay, he has a wife, he's gotten married, and then that has almost kind of been an excuse to like remove any sort of romantic tension or or sexual tension between him and any other character so once you remove that it's like any of the 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 characters that are introduced male or female they have to be like his peers or they have to be his rivals and so with rebecca ferguson she's acting under orders by mi6 and other you know mysterious organizations she is like coming in and kind of kicking his ass at various opportunities like the um in fallout she's able to like one up ethan hunt's character so it's almost like uh the franchise is seeing rebecca ferguson has more charm and chemistry than tom cruise's ethan hunt in these movies she has a more mysterious backstory she has a more interesting emotional arc she is 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 you know starting to best him so it's like eh well since people seem more interested in her like let's kill her off and use that only to fuel Tom Cruise's trajectory in these movies. 
But honestly, let's just grieve her character for like two minutes. And then who cares? Because now we've got Haley Atwell coming in to replace that cog of the Mission Impossible machine. And, and I think it, it really, you know, and the same thing with uh, Paris, the, the uh, Pom Clementis character. Like she betrays Gabriel to help save Ethan Hunt and Grace. And she still just has to die, even though there could have been an interesting turn of, you know, she tried to kill Ethan Hunt, but then she, she was didn't, betrayed. Oh, so just now one, she's no, she on didn't Ethan die. Hunt, so. She didn't die. What was that? There's a scene. It's a very quick, small scene. Guardians of the Galaxy 3 style. But when the oh, authorities come onto the train, pulse, right? yeah, they, yeah, they say she's got a pulse. Because I was like, please don't kill her off. I was praying. <laughs> and when they said that, I was like, yes, because I know that at least somebody dope was coming back for the second movie. Um, right. That's, yeah. I forgot about that. So that there is the potential hope of like someone who has switched sides now being on Ethan Hunt's side to go against Gabriel and and the entity in part two. So so yeah, I'm 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 right there with you that like I I understand that the reason they killed Ilsa just seems to have fueled the main character's journey as opposed to authentically earning it. And now that the most interesting character in these movies is definitively gone it's not like jeremy renner's brant where it's like well he's not in this because he had to make a marvel movie so uh we'll just never address him for the foreseeable future and uh yeah we'll just bring him back if he has the availability in the future all right uh getting to our last topics did you feel that this was because we've seen a couple part ones this summer right fast x um, across the Spider-Verse. Did you feel like this was a good part one um, and a cliffhanger? And then as a follow-up, where do you think we're headed in the second part? I Because this movie is entirely just about a MacGuffin. It's just entirely the key, the key. There's counterfeit keys and we got to authenticate the real key with the real key and the key and the key. Like there's just so much emphasis on this key and the movie ends with them assuredly having both halves of the key and neither the audience nor the characters in the movie seem to know what this key does. I do feel like we were authentically given a conclusion, given that it's built into the title. This is part one. It's, it's not like across the spider verse and beyond the spider verse where the titles themselves imply you're getting a complete adventure. Like, if you don't follow the, the you know film blogs or whatever, you might not know Across the Spider-Verse was a cliffhanger for Beyond the Spider-Verse. So given that this is built in, this is part one, this is not a complete story, I do feel like this left an authentic and relatively fulfilling conclusion to this story of, yeah, they got the key. Ethan Hunt has escaped danger He's got his allies. We don't totally know what Kittredge wants to do. We don't know what other characters are going to do. Gabriel did not get the key this time around. And where it goes in the future, I'm just hoping now that the MacGuffin's out of the way, that the second half of this story can lean a little bit more into this is what the entity is going to do. And this is what Kittredge wants to do with the entity. This is what MI6 would want to do with the entity. And so, you know, I, I feel satisfied as someone who doesn't totally love these movies, you know, I, I, I didn't expect a post-credit sequence. I, I expected, you know, it, it, I, I was fulfilled. Let's just say that. Um, yeah, I mean, I said this on our regular show today, uh, but yeah, I was pleasantly surprised that at least this one, the only one that actually has part one in the title, was the most, felt like the most complete movie out of the three. Um, and because, and again, like I said, this weird disparate combination of things where it's like these deep convoluted character motivations and, and threat from a, like a, a kind of uh, ambiguous villain, but very simplistic in our MacGuffins and, and our quest, right? Part one, get key. Part two, use key for whatever in submarine, right? And so pretty clear cut. And so this one, like you said, was just about obtaining the key and everything that went into that. And we cut it off 
on yeah we won but the future is still looking uncertain and ominous and the enemy is still out there and we gotta complete our mission for part two so i actually did like the split um as for where things are gonna go the weirdest thing about this that i've been kind of like and i don't know it's because of they took the dramatic irony approach in the beginning of showing you what happened but it seemed a lot more, and maybe there's drift under the ice and things, but I was like, you found the keys on top of the ice. Wouldn't the sub be somewhere under there? Like, wouldn't you be looking for the thing under there? Um, but the whole confusion about where the sub is and who knows that, and, you know, Carrie Yoles was supposed to be the one who knew, and now he's dead and all of that. Um, I know they're going to stretch that out into, like, a global kind of hunt, no pun intended, but uh, yeah, I hope they have to go back to Russia and go look at the files of where the sub was and do all that, and we get some more fun set pieces. But I mean, I hope it's just blessedly simple, and everybody's after this thing. They now know key, that Hunt has the key, and it's just like a race. And I hope they John Wick for it almost. Like, it's just a race through a lot of people to get to this one destination. Yeah, and, and like even you, you mentioned racing through, it's like, the, the 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 stakes of this like even if you come into this these movies thinking all i want is huge action set pieces and the car chase featuring grace and Tom and, and ethan handcuffed together in like a little fiat like that was fun and that was entertaining That's but my also there was part. a much better car chase in rogue nation through morocco so it's like oh yeah the bikes this, yeah. Right. Like, and and yeah, and in Fallout, the motorcycle chases. Like, this movie didn't do anything. I feel to push this franchise forward in any way, other than by killing Ilsa. You at least now it feels like there are long term stakes. Like, there are actual ramifications of what will happen in these movies that will impact what happens in the future. And the fact that it's taken seven movies and three decades to get to a point where anything matters it's i mean do we really want ethan hunt back for another seven movies where things actually matter or does he gotta go can these movies exist without tom cruise uh you know it's i don't know what the future holds i don't know how many more movies we can we can take well patrick we say that but expend forbles is coming out soon and now megan fox and 50 cent and tony ja and yuko uh, iwis and you know all these other people are stepping up so i guess you can just form another impossible mission force full of pretty faces willing to jump off stuff and keep it going but um yeah it, it it's uh I'm really curious. Uh, the whole Ethan Hunt, does Ethan Hunt have to die? I kind of think so. I mean, he's got to save him, sacrifice himself and save the rest of his team. Seems like a very Ethan thing to do. Um, and it also sets up people like Haley Atwell, Palm, other people like to take over this series. And I think you can. I mean, the beginning of Ghost Protocol was one of my most exciting. I love that still, where you saw this other team of IMF people operating and that was one thing that always hooked me. I was like, oh, I kind of wish we could, even if they had done like a TV spinoff of these, like I would love to see more IMF squads doing stuff like in these films. And it doesn't need to be centralized over one person, but that's a whole separate other conversation there. I feel like I had something, um, the car chase. I, I did like the car chase mostly just because of the novelty of the humor with the handcuffs. And Haley Atwell did does a good job in this movie. And one of the differences is being this person who's not at all with Ethan Hunt's plan at all. <laughs> like pretty much every step of this. Um, also the chain sequence. I think that's the one thing they elevated because obviously when De Palma did the train sequence at the end of the first one, the technology was still in the 90s, right? <laughs> and you could tell that when you go back and rewatch it. But I liked, I mean, as somebody who sat through that train sequence, things like Jurassic Park, The Lost World, where they did something similar with this, right? With a multi-car uh, vehicle going over a cliff and having to climb through the cars. Um, I thought that did a good job and elevated it. I And, oh, that's what I wanted to say. I've been very negative about this movie, it sounds like, but I still rank it, like I said, pretty high amongst Mission Impossibles. And one thing I think that, we talked about De Palma's stylistic thing, but Christopher, Christopher McQuarrie cut his bones writing kind of gritty, noir-tinted kind of crime tales with, you know, usual suspects and, and way of the gun, things like that. I thought this Mission Impossible 
actually excelled in weirdly better than like action stunts and thrills or, or pushing that it had a lot of tension like i was watching people in the theater sitting next to me because i was sitting with comic book people and just generally people this made us squirm and me included it made us sweat it made us squirm there was a lot more kind of hitchcocky intention which is what i loved about like that party scene which is so silly when we break it down and say like yeah the entity kind of evited everybody to the same party but the tension of those scenes that we get with the Dutch angles and, and you know, the con just the intense conversations these characters are having with each other, I actually did enjoy a lot more than I have in a Mission Impossible. Mission Impossible hasn't had me at the edge of my seat feeling that kind of tension as much in these, like, kind of later sequels. There's cool stuff to see, obviously, but, like, this one did have a lot of points of tension just even right from the beginning with the submarine right and firing the torpedo and and that whole thing there was a lot of good hitchcocky intention in this one and and that that was what de palma started out doing right in the first mission impossible it was much more hitchcocky and mystery thriller and i did enjoy kind of getting back to some of that so that's my positive note on this yeah, that that train sequence definitely was the most exciting element for me. And it, it does also serve as a reminder of like, thinking back, I, obviously you remember like when that Mission Impossible, that first movie came out, every single parody of, you know, Tom Cruise dangling from those wires. That was not an explosive sequence. That was not highly complex stunts. Like that was just, tension literally and figuratively and i think the train sequence at the end of dead reckoning is the closest it has come yeah even if we've seen it in the lost world like the stakes were a little bit higher so i feel like maybe that is the core of what these movies are is it's less about giant set pieces and explosions and it's about the tension of him scaling a wall in dubai where his gloves are starting to break or the train where there's a piano that's about to slide down if they don't jump across. And I think it's just these Mission Impossible movies, I don't know if they can exist without Tom Cruise because Tom Cruise is the character of Ethan Hunt. And comparing it to something like Dial of Destiny that just came out, I don't see Harrison Ford off screen uh, I see Indiana Jones. Like, I feel like Harrison Ford is so much Indiana Jones as opposed to, to vice versa, where it just feels like Tom Cruise is in these movies. I can't tell you anything about who Ethan Hunt is as a character or, or any of his quirks or any of his personality traits. So I think if Ethan Hunt slash Tom Cruise is gone, this series isn't going to survive on the backs of Simon Pegg and Haley Atwell. These movies are about seeing movie stars on the big screen, bantering with one another, having tension-filled stunt sequences. And I think if you remove Tom Cruise from that equation, I, I don't see it surviving. And, it, and if it doesn't, and if it does a spinoff of an IMF type of spinoff experience, you know, roll those dice and, and, and see how it pans out. Yeah, I mean, nobody's going to commit to it like Tom Cruise did. I mean, that's just never going to happen. Nobody's hanging well, on even, the side of a plane uh, or off a helicopter. Or... Even even with this one, I think with Fallout, when he's climbing the, the rope on the helicopter and you see, you know, these wide-angle lenses of Tom Cruise hanging onto the bottom of a helicopter, you know that he's strapped in there safely, but you're still like, holy crap, that's really a person whether it's Tom Cruise or not, even with like the motorcycle stunt, stunt in this latest one, the way that the camera movements are executed, you don't even see Tom Cruise's face as he jumps off that motorcycle if it wasn't for behind the scenes featurettes. So like, I don't even think that any of these stunt sequences are necessarily elevated just because you can see Tom Cruise's face. No. One of my favorite, I mean, my favorite stunt sequence in this movie, I think, is the one, and I liked that they started playing around with style in Fallout, like there's a whole imaginary sequence where he imagines them taking, you know, the heisting or uh, breaking Solomon Lane out, and there's this kind of just music, very violent sequence of them killing everybody, and it's like Tom Cruise imagining that, and before you go back and you're like, oh, that's not how we're going to do it. Um, but 
my favorite stunt in this one is when Haley Atwell crashes in a car at some point and it spins around and she's just sitting in there and you see for a moment like how disoriented and messed up she is with the crash and the henchmen are coming to get her and you're like, oh crap, she's not gonna be able to get out of there in time. And you just see a motorcycle fly through and just like wipe out two henchmen outside the car window and it's Ethan hunting and then he comes running up. And again, you didn't have to see them do that, but that was like a very creative kind of fun way to do it. So I think that's what they kind of have been excelling at. But uh, I mean, yeah, I mean, the John Wick franchise is giving them a run for their money. I mean, in that regard, but two different ways. But uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if this can survive without Tom Cruise, because I'm not sure. I'm like you. I'm not sure it could, because yeah, you could do an IMF movie with the same basic kind of beats and blueprint, but it's just going to be a pale imitation of what Tom Cruise did. So in that sense, you're kind of losing. All right, I think we can start to wrap this up unless you have any big thoughts. When I was just watching the screen of the trailer, one of my favorite scenes that did catch me by surprise in this is when he is uh, Kittredge's little assistant and he throws the gas bombs because in the trailer, they make that look like it's a villain attack, right? Um, but no, the IMF is just very violent with chemical chemical opioids and knocking you out. Um well that that does remind me of you know there's a scene where kittredge is because the the whole thing is the entity can get its fingers into any electronic anything that's connected to any sort of network and there's a scene where they have to like kittredge has to improvise a new base with like analog communication systems and analog headquarters and analog like tube tvs and it's never really returned to or utilized in any sort of capacity other than saying, yeah, we can still exist. We just had to like unplug some stuff. Yeah. So, you know, the, again, I, I feel like we're pretty much on the same page about these Mission Impossible movies that like even at their worst, like they're still entertaining, but at its best, it's still not going to compare to some other more, uh, uh, more well-executed character-driven stories or high-concept stories or John Wick stunt uh, 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 stunt choreography. So it's like, you know, even if I don't have a ton of glowing things to say about this, uh, you know, my the headline for my review is that it was another confounding crowd-pleaser. And I feel like that's what all these movies are, is like, you can just tune out when they start getting into the specifics of the plot even even going back to the very first movie when they talk about the knock list and you know max and emailing job and all this sort of nonsense like i remember that being mocked at the time for how overly complex all of it is so if you're really going into these movies getting a concrete cohesive through line from point a to point b i don't think you're ever going to get it but even with those uh 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 constraints i still feel like this one is is explicitly convoluted and ambiguous and everything is just a credit to the entity but i'm crossing my fingers that that stuff gets figured out by the time dead reckoning part two comes along yeah i think they gotta update i think this year is making them update that script a little bit and be like oh we gotta Hopefully. we gotta talk about AA. all right just before we go out just for fun let's do some uh rankings uh Let's see. Let's rank our Mission Impossible movies. Uh, I'll run through mine first, I think, because I already kind of spoiled it. Uh, my Mission Impossible ranking after seeing Dead Reckoning is at number seven. Just to remind you guys, it exists. Mission Impossible 2 was a thing. Just so you know, it was a thing. So Mission Impossible 2 is my number seven. Number six is Mission Impossible 3. J.J. Abrams made a perfectly okay Mission Impossible. It just looks like it was a really good episode of TV as opposed to a movie. And you killed off Carrie Russell. You fridged another great character I would have loved to spend more time with. Uh, number five is Mission Impossible Fallout. I rewatched this one yesterday, and we gave it a lot of credit when it came out, but I feel like it is not... It's like a not great... It's not as great of a follow-up to what Rogue Nation was, so... It was okay, Henry Cavill, the arm punch, a lot of fun in that. Nothing too bad, but again, it was just kind of a middling, muted kind of combination of things of leftovers from Rogue Nation plus some new stuff they were trying to do, and it kind of worked out okay. Um, and it also was kind of more obvious. Like, I was like, as soon as I saw Henry Cavill, I was like, okay, that guy's the bad guy, and that was like the twist, so whatever. 
Number four uh, is Dead Reckoning Part 1. Like I said, uh, again, kind of middling for kind of a different combinations of good and bad reasons. But I feel like it's a little bit better than Fallout in terms of the tension, the kind of sequences that we get in it, uh, that train sequences really redeems it. The cliff sequence is a milestone and awesome, but like the train sequence at the end and the airport sequence, which was one of my more f kind of favorite Mission Impossible. We didn't talk about it, but them just trying to get through the airport in the beginning of the first, or the, either the end of the first act or beginning of the second act was another fun sequence in classic ways, playing with like facial recognition and then kind of getting more complicated with this bomb and the fake out and all that. So there were some great sequences in here that I enjoyed. Uh, number three is Mission Impossible 1, the classic, like, like I said, not what we expected when we got a Brian De Palma blockbuster kind of action mystery film and the unique things he did still hold up to this day. That opening sequence of the party where the team gets taken out, still great. Um, the, the Langley scene and breaking into Langley and the wires and the tension and all of that, still great. And the train sequence for its time, still great. And the kind of reveals about Jim and the betrayal and all that, you know, classic stuff that set the tone for so many other spy franchises afterwards ghost protocol was the fa like the fast and furious of this franchise where i was like after three i was like i don't know man i feel like mission impossible is possibly losing steam then tom cruise grew his hair out back to that mission impossible two length and got brad bird in here who just basically figured out like the real strength of these movies could be a rube goldberg machine of stunt sequences uh kind of linked together loosely by a plot and uh kind of a half-formed villain but it worked in each one of those sequences is pretty great in Ghost Protocol from the opening till the ending, the brutal ending sequence, which is still one of the more brutal endings to Mission Impossible, jumping off of, you know, things of car lifts. So great movie that kind of revitalized the franchise. And I think it hit its peak with, in my opinion, with Rogue Nation, which was, I love simplistic comic booky premises. And, you know, when they just utter the line in anti-IMF in that movie, it's like, that's exciting stuff, right? We now have a team of people who are equally suited to taking on Ethan and his team. We have the best antagonist of the franchise in Solomon Lane. So uh, Rogue Nation is still my number one. Patrick, take it away. What's your ranking? Uh, well, coming in dead last, even a Limp Biscuit crafted theme song can't salvage Mission Impossible 2. I mean, like, John Woo was coming off a of face-off, so I appreciate that, you know, they got uh, uh, this great action director in in that series, but the, the, you know, virus that they want to expose the world to, Dugray Scott thankfully did this instead of becoming Wolverine, so we got Hugh Jackman as Wolverine, so that's another positive. And, like, the end is fun like the end of the movie with all the motorcycles and and you know all that sort of stuff is fun but just it definitely very much reeks of just like generic late 90s early 2000s action movie and all of the slow-mo at the end in the fight between Dugray Scott and Tom Cruise to see Tom Cruise's mop of hair just slowly uh uh you know spraying all over the place like it, it just doesn't really do anything uh controversial for you might be that i i i am not a fan of rogue nation um i feel like because it came after ghost protocol they sort of knew they needed to take the stunts bigger and i do think that the opera sequence is a lot of fun between Ilsa and Ethan and a hitman and the platforms rising and lowering like that is fun but the biggest like stunt most tense set piece involves Tom Cruise being underwater for three minutes and I just don't think that holds a candle to really anything else that happens in in the rest of these bigger stunt oriented sequences and I feel like there's so much of an emphasis on the plot and the betrayal and the Solomon Lane wants us to do this, so we're going to do it, but then not do it. Like, there's just too much narrative hoops that the plot has to jump through involving playing into someone's plan and then circumventing expectations that all of those discussions just kind of grind the narrative momentum to a halt. Um, Deck Reckoning, Dead Reckoning, I do think is better than Rogue Nation, so it comes in at number five for me. 
it you know the stunt sequences are better the the ambiguous the entity villain is a little bit uh uh more streamlined than rogue nation and all of its all of its betrayals and double crosses but still i put mission impossible three at number four i do think even though it's not incredible it doesn't have the stunt sequences that the series has become known for but like that opening sequence of uh, uh, the the media res opening sequence of Tom Cruise having to, you know, having that countdown to save his wife. And then Philip Seymour Hoffman as the villain of that is fantastic. And having actual stakes because his wife's life is at risk. I think people overlook Mission Impossible 3 uh, a bit, but, you know, also I am not the target audience for these movies so i understand if people are like no you're an idiot you don't know what you're talking about um fallout for me comes in at number three solomon lane i think cashing in on the reputation of him leaning into more ilsa as a threat the uh the finale of the helicopter sequences i think is super fun very tense very gripping uh, the opening or, or the, the the first act um, skydiving sequence, I think is fantastic. The way that Henry Cavill and Tom Cruise banter off one another is really fulfilling. And that bathroom scene of, of Henry Cavill having to load his arms before getting into a fight. I, I feel like it really elevated and really cashed in on the premise of Ghost Protocol and the embrace of stunts. But I do think Ghost Protocol is better. I put that at number two. I was working at a movie theater at the time that that movie came out. And every single time I had a 10, 10 minutes free, I would walk into whatever movie theater was playing Ghost Protocol. Because any 10 minutes of that movie is just as exciting and just as engaging as any other 10 minutes. Whether it, them, whether it be the, the hallway scene in the Kremlin of Benji and Ethan slowly creeping up whether it be the car park sequence, the Dubai sequence, the the uh, fake hotel room that's one floor above and one floor below. Everything about that movie is just so incredibly watchable that Brad Bird's visual storytelling combined with the, the silliness of these spy movies and by finally making it so that Ethan Hunt's glove malfunctions and showing like, no, things don't always go according to plan is a core concept of this series. But ultimately, that first movie is still my number one. I'm a huge Brian De Palma fan. So seeing him helm a huge, you know, coming off of movies like Carrie and Phantom of the Paradise and Blowout, and, you know, all of these like campy genre movies and applying that to this huge budget spy movie starring Tom Cruise at the height of his fame and power. I feel like it was just like the perfect melding of source material that has an inherent campiness to it. The, 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 uh, you know, self-referential, the awareness that Brian De Palma has of intentionally using the camera to do things that you know that it is a camera. Like you are watching a movie and he is letting you know you are watching a movie with what the camera does, capping off in that at the time, boundary pushing stunt sequences of a helicopter attached to a train in a tunnel that when it finally explodes and throws Tom Cruise from from the, the, the helicopter onto the train like I, I feel like that's the peak of this franchise so to me Mission Impossible 1 is still still takes the cake for the top spot all right that is our review and breakdown of Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1. Well, I should say this is Part 1 of our review and discussion of Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, because we will have to do Part 2 when it comes out. This is also our rankings of the Mission Impossible movies, and we are beyond interested to hear what you guys have to say after seeing the film. So please let us know on the at Comic Book Nation Twitter page, or you can find me on threads at Kofi Outlaw, you know, social media, wherever you can find me, whatever's still open. Please do come on and let us know how you rank your Mission Impossible movies. We'd really like to know. 
Otherwise, I'd like to thank Patrick Cavanaugh for taking the time. You can read his review of Mission Impossible, Dead Reckoning, Part 1, a confounding crowd pleaser on comicbook.com in our movies section. Be sure to check that out. Be sure to check out our regular show. Subscribe to Comic Book Nation on your favorite podcast platforms and subscribe to our YouTube page where we drop things like bonus bonus round episodes, interviews, all kinds of other discussions that we like to have over on that page exclusively. So be sure to subscribe to it as well. Otherwise, I'm Kofi Outlaw and you can, I'll see you out there. Patrick, you want to say goodbye to everybody? Thanks everybody for listening. So long as the entity hasn't shut us down on threads blue sky mastodon hive every single uh social media platform out there uh but you can always hit me up at the wolfman on twitter to let me know how wrong i am about mission impossible i'm pretty sure the entity is a comic book nation fan we do it we're the only show doing it all for geek culture it's learning from us exponentially So we'll see you guys next time. Take it easy. This is Comic Book Nation. Peace.